This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Right here, welcome along to a special Blood Red podcast as we focus in on the Olympics. With the Games now officially open out in Tokyo following a year's delay due to the COVID pandemic, we catch up with one of Team GB's Olympians. Sarah Evans, part of the GB women's hockey side, who were of course defending the gold medal one out in Rio five years ago, chats to us about the Games, her love of Liverpool, in particular Jurgen Klopp, as well as being an athlete during these pandemic times and plenty more. Besides, enjoy the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Well, we best sort of, first of all, Sarah, get into things. Thanks a lot for joining us. You are, of course, out in Tokyo already and prepared for the Games. What's what's the atmosphere been like out there? Yeah, it's um, very exciting. Obviously, we're, we've it's been a long time coming for us um, preparing for these Olympics. You know, we're just really excited that they've been able to go ahead um, they feel a little bit different with all the sort of COVID restrictions they've got going on. But, um, you know, we're in a really good place going into our first game, which will be on Sunday. Yeah, and I suppose sort of looking at it all and everything from the outside, it must have been sort of nerve-wracking experience for you guys in particular, sort of with the, the year delay, defending the gold as it were, and just wanting to get there. Yeah, definitely. Um I mean, obviously, when it was delayed, when the announcement came out, um, we were gutted, but obviously we we understood the decision and it was the right thing to do. And actually, for us as a squad, it just gave us one extra year to to improve and to have more time together as a squad. Our coach only came in a year before the announcement, so we've just had an extra year to just fine-tune, make sure we're that extra bit prepared. Um, and then, obviously, as it's got closer, um, sort of with COVID at home, obviously cases going up um it was pretty nerve-wracking just trying to make sure that everybody stayed covid free um luckily we we're all vaccinated um but i'm not gonna lie that we had to test a lot in the build-up um to our flight and then had to test once we landed in tokyo and obviously if you tested positive then you would sort of shipped off to a quarantine hotel and that would have been you out of the olympics so that was an extremely nerve-wracking 24 hours but we made it all through unscathed and yeah settled into the village right now um and just really excited for the games to get underway yeah definitely and I, I suppose sort of for elite sports people and dealing with covid it's kind of been sort of two different camps hasn't there for example with the footballers it was a case of three months off initially and then sort of finishing a season and cramming another one in and for others it, it kind of has been more and more of a delay waiting to be able to kind of get back to things. And I suppose with you guys, that, that kind of year delay for competition, I suppose, throws up all different challenges. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think initially we thought, great, another year, that will give us so much more extra time. But in reality, you know, we weren't able to come together as a squad fully for quite a while after the game, sorry, after the games were delayed and, and obviously we went into lockdown. Um, and we were sort of eating further bit by bit. We were allowed to do slightly more and um, obviously we didn't want to jump straight in too much with um, risk of injuries um, and obviously then the COVID restrictions. So we haven't had as much competition as we probably would have had with a year leading into an Olympic Games. Um, but we've been extremely fortunate that we've been able to still train full time from September last year. Um, so we've got a big squad and we were able to do a lot of inter-squad matches and obviously training full time, which we're hugely fortunate to have the opportunity to do that. Um, 
and then actually in the, the last couple of months leading in we've had more and more matches but yeah it definitely wasn't as it sort of sounded that we had an extra year um, that definitely threw a lot of challenges our way um, but I think you know we've prepared really really well um, especially with the heat work it's obviously a really hot and humid out in Japan so the English Institute of Sport did an amazing job in making these pop-up heat tents for us um, because we weren't allowed to use the chamber that we'd normally use in our performance lab um, so sort of all the new innovative ways of us to be as prepared as we can do we made the most of all of them and yeah we're out here now and can't wait to get going. Yeah, I'm sure you've probably heard from family and friends over the last few days. It's been absolutely sweltering back here in, <laughs> in Britain as well. But I'm glad you kind of brought up the uh, sort of preparation work that obviously sort of the, the GB Olympic setup across the board kind of using everything. I was fascinated to hear the other day about kind of that greenhouse technology of trying to sort of recreate the humidity you guys are going to come up with. Yeah, it, it definitely was interesting when they first showed it to us in this big marquee out in the grounds at Bisham Abbey where we train and there were individual tents that were pretty much a greenhouse with a watt bike in it. So yeah. it sort of looked a bit like a torture chamber and it probably was a bit like that. Um, but essentially we had a big heater in there and we had to get up to at least 38.5 degrees. Um, so we had regular temperature checks. Um, so I think the worst thing was getting up to that temperature because you had to pretty much do a bike session to do that and I think our humidity was over 70% and up to 40 degrees heat so um, it was pretty brutal and then once you were up to temperature you had to stay in that heat and kick your legs over on the bike or, or do a little bit extra exercise for an hour to make sure that our bodies were just acclimatizing and we did that a few times to sort of practice it and then fully for a week uh, before we let out in our preparation. So um, I think it's definitely helped us being out here. It is hot and it's humid, but we're coping really, really well with it. And I think just all those little gains that we were able to make whilst we're back home uh, will be hopefully really paying off out here. Yeah, I thought it was hard enough sitting sort of by a, an, an open door on the kitchen table the last few days. I don't know how you guys kind of cope with <laughs> that kind of thing, but that, that I suppose, elite sports people. But in terms of yourself and, and your story, obviously knowing we were going to be speaking to you, sort of caught one of the interviews you gave earlier in the year and kind of talking about your own journey to getting to the Olympic Games. Of course, the women's side won the gold in Rio five years ago, but albeit you've been part of the squad for many, many years. You weren't selected on that. And I found it astonishing to find that you kind of had a, a 32 sort of women's squad that then had to get cut down to 16. Absolutely brutal. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're, we're extremely fortunate that we um, we train full-time, lottery-funded, um, funded by UK Sport. And um, because we need to have a big squad, there's obviously lots of injuries and just, to make a really competitive environment there so for the Rio cycle there's 32 of us and this time around uh, there was 26 um so we have really competitive training all the time to get whichever 16 that it is on the pitch out in uh, the olympics to be as best prepared as possible so each obviously throughout an olympic cycle um not the same 16 or 18 lots of other tournaments are played with 18 players that will change from tournament to tournament based on form you know lots of different reasons um so we're used to having lots of selections along the way but obviously the big one is the olympics um and i think it's quite an, an interesting dynamic lots of people will look at it and think how how does that work but essentially we've got a really strong team culture and we sit down early on in, in the olympic cycle um we sit down and we um 
we buy into our vision of values and behaviors and how we want to operate on a day-to-day basis and I think once everybody who's within the squad buys into that vision in particular then everybody is pulling the same direction and you all want to have that outcome of winning Olympic gold and that means that everybody turns up day in day out and they see the behaviors that we've all bought into and to do that yes you are at times competing against your own teammates but you're doing it for the greater good of the GB team that's going to go to the Olympics and making sure that whichever 16 walk out onto the pitch for whichever game that they are as best prepared as possible and to know that every single one of those 32 that were in our training squad in the in the build-up to Rio they contributed to that Olympic gold and and without each and every one of that 32 then you know that that gold might not have been possible and so I think the actual culture around that is so crucial for the success. Yeah, no, it must give you sort of a, a real sort of competitive nature within the squad, but friendly sort of competition, as it were. But but also personally, you were speaking there kind of about all the tests and everything and the threat of quarantine. The drive you must have within yourself, having been part of that group, but obviously not out in Rio, must be absolutely immense for these games. Yeah, I think, you know, everyone, elite sports are very highly pressurised, highly competitive environment, and I think probably you wouldn't get to the, being the point of being in the squad if you didn't have some of those traits so um we definitely push each other all on um every day in training and yeah at times you're going to go through real lows and then hopefully you get to experience real highs along the way um so but for me the reason I do it is because you're surrounded by your teammates and your friends and I'm a real team sport person and wouldn't be able to do it without my teammates next to me so you experience all of that together um yeah, definitely wouldn't be able to do it on my own or within an individual sport. No, most definitely. And uh, just sort of thinking back to the, the Euro squad and everything, I think Gareth Southgate had to pick sort of 26 from 33 and there was all the fiore around whether Trent was going to go or not. I, I can only imagine within hockey the sort of chats that are having to to kind of go on. But looking back on that success in Rio five years ago, it sort of seemed to be, for me, obviously only a, a casual sports fan and, and that of hockey in particular, a real breakthrough moment, certainly for women's sport, with just how many people tuned in and really got behind the girls and sort of the journey they were on. Yeah, I think it was I think it was 9.2 million people t- tuned in for that final. I think the, the, uh, the news was uh, delayed, which is obviously huge for us. You know, we're not um, used to having huge record crowds. And I think it's a, a shame we won't have the spectators out here. Um, in Japan, we would have loved our family and friends to be out here with us. But yeah, I mean, that Rio Gold was, was incredible. Um, and you can just see that each game. So we had the Home World Cup um, earlier in 2018, and we had 10,000 fans come to watch that on home soil. We've had a game at the Twickenham Soup. We relayed a hockey pitch on top of the rugby field there. So definitely the great game is growing and the people wanting to watch and get involved, which is brilliant. So hopefully we can continue that success here in Tokyo and, and really build that momentum and um, yeah, keep, keep hockey on the map and get people involved no matter what age. Yeah, no, it was one of those buzzwords, wasn't it, out of sort of London 2012 legacy, but it does feel as though your team in particular kind of carry that flag and, and having gone from strength to strength. And I hope you can sort of continue that out in Tokyo and uh, and get the gold again. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.
wanted to talk to you as well about Liverpool and looking back at that 2016 squad. Sam Quek, of course, a, a very popular and, and big Liverpool fan as well. Is there a bit of a sort of, um, I suppose, loyalty in the camp towards Liverpool or are you all sort of different different fans and whatnot? Um, yeah, there's a big, well, there's a, there's a few of us. So we've got a, um, a fancy football group, of course. Um, so lots of uh, football chat does go on within, definitely from certain individuals uh, within the squad. But there's a few, me, myself and Emily DeFrond are very big Liverpool fans. Actually, our coaching, big within the coaching staff. Um, two of our coaches are also big, big Reds. Um, I know there's, a, there's quite a big split, um, but obviously when Sam was in the squad uh, last cycle as well, um, there was a lot of good chat for Liverpool. I, I, I definitely think we're the most forceful fans. <laughs> we put <laughs> our support for, for Liverpool out there. I'll always turn up to gym sessions in my Liverpool top. Um, we've got a couple of West Ham fans in the squad. Susanna Townsend's a big West Ham fan. So, um, yeah, we're definitely the loudest. I'll say that. I was going to say, yeah, any of the girls who maybe aren't into to football too much are forced, Liverpool forced uh, upon yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, it sounds, had, it sounds um, that way. We had football shirt Friday for one of the gym sessions and I just brought in pretty much my collection of Liverpool tops and anyone that didn't like football or wore it just wore Liverpool. So then it looked like it was majority Liverpool, which is good. No, that's 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 good to hear. And uh, in in terms of sort of your thoughts on Liverpool and everything, I suppose sort of the last year was kind of difficult. And, and looking at it from a sports person's perspective, and obviously seeing the reception the girls got from Rio and winning that, the inability to really celebrate the Premier League title so much, sort of from a uh, fan's perspective, that's one thing. But from a player's as well, it, it must have sort of you could probably realise and see the the toll maybe it could take on them. Yeah, and for me, I think just. You know, Anfield and the COP in particular is just has that atmosphere that I don't think is recreated a, a, across any other stadium. And I think to having a whole season without having those fans in there, um, you can see, and, and everyone comes to Liverpool, especially as reigning champions, and that's the biggest game of the season. They want to beat the champions. And I think normally, say it's an edgy game, um, Liverpool, how many goals did they score in the last minutes of game? That yeah. wasn't happening last season because there wasn't the pressure didn't build for the for the players that are coming to to face us they didn't have the crowd in their faces chanting at them um and i think for me i think that was one of the biggest things for us this year that actually the the support of the fans and the noise that anfield brings i think that didn't get into the heads of our positions and they were able to feel a lot more relaxed whereas normally they would hate coming to anfield um and then yeah i think this whole of I don't think we recognised how short it was between the lockdowns and going then from winning, being so comfortable with the league, pretty much winning it. And then, you know, the fear of it not actually happening and us not winning after all of this time, having been so dominant um, and then actually not having too much of a break to then start a new season. Um, I think just emotionally, mentally and of course, physically, when you've got, you know, Robbo going up and down that wing, how many times he, minutes he played for the whole season, that, it's pretty hard to be able to sustain that for huge periods of time that and back-to-back seasons. Um, so, yeah, I think COVID definitely not helped us in our title retention, uh, but I've got every faith that this season we'll get back on top um, and hopefully we'll be lifting that trophy again. Yeah, no, I suppose it only sort of speaks to sort of the, the the levels of I suppose superhuman Andy Robertson is the fact he started all sort of thirty eight Premier League games and and as you, as you were saying there without sort of 
a crowd sort of geeing you on because it's one thing to prepare and get your head around coming back for kind of the, the restart that they had to go through, but then another for going through the whole season. What was it? I think four games maybe there were there were fans at Anfield, the three-round Christmas, and then obviously the, the final mm. game of the season and just sort of the, the toll that takes. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, like I said before, I'm a, a team sports person. And when your teammates are doing on, you get that extra buzz to be able to find that extra bit of energy. And then imagine that, you know, however many times more with all the fans in the crowd cheering you, willing you, sort of pulling you over the line. And, and often you hear um, sports people say that there was, you know, the 12th man in the, that was in the crowd that was actually on their side. And I think it's been overlooked up to how much how really important that is and especially when you can just dig deep and find those extra levels of whether it's an extra sprint whether it's um just putting in that tackle getting back defending saving ball off the line putting it in uh, scoring a goal you know that the sort of extra bit that the crowd can the influence that they can have on the team I think is is not hasn't really been appreciated and I think this year it was just shown how important that is and you know, as Liverpool fans, we pride ourselves on the, on the atmosphere that we bring to Anfield. And I think it's shown just how important that is. So, you know, if we can get back in there and then be able to cheer everybody on, then we'll get back to winning ways, I'm sure. Yeah, let's let's wait and see if that is the case. Last Liverpool question I, I wanted to ask you, in terms of your coach, more on sort of the, the Jurgen Klopp side of sort of geeing everyone up and those kind of man management skills or more Rafa Benitez, a bit more sort of tactile and all about sort of the, the tactical side of the game? Um, interesting. Our old, so the, our coach at Rio was definitely more Rafa Benitez, very tactical, knew the game side out, would have a different press for different teams. Um, currently, Mark is, I mean, he's definitely, I think Jurgen is so hard to yeah. compare him to. He's, he's definitely one of, well, our assistant coach was a big United fan, actually, and I would give him a lot of stick for it. But he used to love Jürgen. So, um, <laughs> no, I think it's hard to recreate. He's definitely more of a um, the man manager side. Um, but, you know, yeah, Jürgen's just a special human, I think. You can just see how much the boys um, want to play for him. And I think, you know, for me as a player, I would always want a coach to um, demand high standards, tell us when we're not doing things good enough. But then when you do do with the game plan or you do something that he's been working on in training, you can just see that he praises his team, his team, his players, uh, gives that big hug. He goes on after the, uh, after the game, interacts with the crowd, and you can just see the relationship that he has with the players is, is so special. And you can see that they want to win for him as well as the club um, and themselves. And yeah, he's, he's definitely a very special manager and um, I'm very glad that he's ours. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well put. In final thing, I wanted to to chat to you about was the the unlocked program that you're you're part of with the Women's Sport Trust, and I suppose we're sort of really seeing at the moment a real boom in women's sport and that diversity nature of the crossover even between men's and women's sport. Certainly, anything to the Euros with the amount of sort of female pundits and co-commentators involved in the tournament as a whole, and it feels as though it is a great time to kind of capitalise on the success that you guys in the women's sport whether it's football, obviously the, the GB side have already started their campaign. You guys were with hockey as well. And even, I suppose, like the, the Rugby Sevens who lately got funding for the, the competition as well. Just sort of, I suppose, maximising that and, and showcasing the ability that women's sport offers. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think 
each time the women's sport is put out there, it does get a really good reception. Um, you know, we had the the netball World Cup, the cricket women's World Cup, and you know they had sell out crowds and and they're, and like say nine point two million people tuning in in Rio to watch uh, GB women win gold and and the WSL is just going from strength to strength and um, definitely women's sport if we put it out there it is received in a really good way and I think it's just consistently being able to have it out in the media and to have it accessible for people to watch and I know as a female sports person I mean I am such a huge advocate of all women's sport but I find it hard for even someone like me who's actively wants to watch it to know exactly when it's on or um, to really engage with it so I think just the more it's out in the media and the more that we it's in front of us and we have female pundits broadcasters for young girls to look up to to know that that is a career path for them and someone to to look up to and be inspired by then we're just going to have more of a conveyor belt of women being in the tv like in front of our screens um and i think it will only keep building on that momentum and going from strength to strength and um like i said i think the the appetite is there for people it's just whether we can capitalize on that and of course the more successful we are as sports people the more that we're likely to be in the media in front of people so it was obviously onus on us to perform um and we obviously would do everything to do that and give our absolute all um and then hopefully you know people can enjoy it and be fans get hooked and, and want to see more and more yeah most definitely for, for you is there ever a path into football or was it always solely hockey um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, they didn't. We didn't play football at my school. Um, when I was, went to primary school, I played. I was. I, <laughs> I actually wrote a letter to my uh, headmaster because they didn't have a girls' football team, and I wanted to play football, so they let me join the boys' football team. Um, but there was only so many years that sort of happened for. I played in the boys' cricket team as well. Um, and then when I went to secondary school, my school played hockey um, and did rowing. Um, so I joined my local hockey club because my brother did. Um, he he was a big football player actually as well, but did both football and hockey together. Um, and then he went down the hockey path and I just wanted to follow him. Um, so then I fell in love with it and that was a sport for me. But, you know, I definitely, if the opportunity was there and if it was more accessible for me, then I definitely could have gone in that direction. And I absolutely love football. It probably takes up as much of my time and energy as hockey because I will pretty much, our, our house is very uh, football dominated with my husband being a Man United fan. So there's big debates oh. that go on constantly. Um, so, yeah, football is on the TV at all times. Um, so it'll always have a place in my heart. Yeah, well, at least whilst you're away at the Olympic Village, it can be all focus on Liverpool. Sarah, it's been absolutely brilliant chatting with you and uh, good luck. And hopefully you, you can bring back the gold. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.